Welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. And we're on the fourth Sunday of Easter. And in the gospel, the gospel according to John chapter 10, it says this Sunday, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can take them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can take them out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. This is part of his farewell discourse, and it's we read this on Good Shepherd Sunday, but as the in the readings of Easter, as we move from stories of the resurrection to what the resurrection means, we go back to Jesus' public ministry when he called himself the Good Shepherd. You know, he did not make that up, the idea of God being the shepherd of the people Israel. If you go back to the prophet Ezekiel, and if you remember, Ezekiel was a prophet during the time of the Babylonian exile. Uh, and if you go to chapter 34 of, uh, of Ezekiel, you'll find that at the beginning it starts out, the word of the Lord came to me, that's Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord your God, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been pastoring themselves. Should not shepherds pasture the flock? And so criticizing the leaders of Israel that have been feeding off the people. And then later in verse 10 through 12 of Ezekiel 34, Thus says the Lord God, look, I'm coming against these shepherds. I will take my sheep out of their hand and put a stop to their shepherding, my flock, so that these shepherds will no longer pasture them. I will deliver my flock from their mouths, so it will not become their food. For thus says the Lord God, look, I myself will search for my sheep and examine them. As a shepherd examines his flock, while he himself is among his scattered sheep. So will I examine my sheep. I will deliver them from every place where they were scattered on the day of dark clouds. So Ezekiel's prophesying in the 6th century, and he's talking about the corrupt leadership of Jerusalem that led to the Babylonian conquest of Judah and the exile of the people that went on for 70 years one of the most traumatic things that ever happened to the Jewish people um, historically until really the time of the Holocaust. But this is the background that Jesus has in mind. So think about he, how he thinks about the Good Shepherd. When Jesus spoke in the Gospel, he said the, sheep, the, the Good Shepherd uh, speaks and the sheep have these three characteristics. Quote, they hear my voice, end quote. Second, relationship. I know them. And the third, discipline and obedience, that they follow me. To hear, to know, to follow. And we're going to see that in the Acts of the Apostles. But in this gospel, Jesus talks about a darker, a darker aspect of all of this. Do you remember when he said in the gospel, I and the Father are one, and these sheep are in my hand, and no one can take them out of my hand. What he's talking about is the satanic and the demonic. I don't know if you've ever given much thought 
to how there are competing voices. You've probably given some thought to that. God's voice, but also darker voices. So here's something to think about the satanic and the demonic before we turn to the Acts of the Apostles. The satanic calls people into unity in the darkness, calls them to unity around lies. One uh, is brought to mind of the easy example of Adolf Hitler, but I think whenever you see people gathered in the dark around lies, especially lies that turn to violence and, and, and undermining of the common good of other people, you're talking about a satanic voice. In our culture, when we talk about Twitter or the fights that go on in Congress, I think what you're looking at is a demonic voice. The demonic voice doesn't gather people together. It sets people against each other. And so understanding how evil works is how you can look out into the world and see it operative. The satanic that draws people into the unity and the darkness, the demonic that divides them once against each other. And compare and contrast that with how Jesus describes the good shepherd. He calls the, the sheep, they hear his voice, they know him and they follow him. The one that describes himself as the way and the truth and the life. So why did people listen? Because the story of the Acts of the Apostles is about the great success of the church as it spread out throughout the Roman Empire. I'd like to take a moment and turn to two things. The first, talk about the pagan religion environment, which is really worthy of consideration because of the echoes that it has for our present in patterns of thought. But the second, to look at the preaching of the apostles, especially St. Paul, and how it is that as an emissary of the Good Shepherd, he drew people to himself. Perhaps we can draw some um, good lessons from this as we think about our own times. I'll be back in a moment. You can think of the mythic world as merely fantasy, but in, to those who think in a mythic pattern of thinking, they don't see things as myth. They see it as explanations. Fantasy is something like the Avengers, you know, Captain America and Iron Man and all the heroes that have made all these huge, money-grossing movies. These are fantasies. If you look carefully at each of those characters, they're, they're characters that emulate mythic characters. They're godlike in their powers. And there were uh, people that are not godlike, but are heroes that these legendary tales are told about. Well, think of Batman. He's a human being. He just uses technology to have these extra human capabilities. Wonder Woman, she's like a goddess, like Artemis. So when we look at the modern world, this pattern of mythic thinking and fantasy runs through uh, all cultures, all cultures have these kinds of stories. They can be used to express stories of courage. We don't really think of the Avengers as being real, but they tell us about uh, the heroic deeds that we can expect from other human beings. But we have other myths in our culture that really do represent uh, some sense of how we think the world really is. How about Roswell, New Mexico, and the idea 
that um, extraterrestrials have visited us. People, some people accept that as truth on what appears to be like absolutely no evidence, but it's a mythic way of thinking. You were myths would project into the past these stories about a golden age. How much of our thinking in uh, the uh, Enlightenment world in 20th century America has projected into the future a golden age? I mean, you have people like Elon Musk talking about how they are exploring offloading their personalities, like a downloading uh, uh, operating system from a computer and then uploading it into dark matter in the universe. These are fantastic stories that don't appear to have any reality to them, but it is a mythic way of thinking, whether you project the golden age into the past or into the future. They all involve a fantastic way of thinking, but there are some consistencies in the pattern of thinking. You know, in the past, the governments of uh, Rome, and uh, Rome especially is a good example, uh, used uh, myths to try and uh, firm up the legitimacy of the Roman state. A really good example is the uh, Emperor Augustus, who reigned from the middle of the first century BC to just the beginning of the first century um, AD, or the, after the Common Area Era. He consciously tried to bring in Greek myths into Rome in order to provide a foundation for his usurpation of power in a civil war. So if you've ever heard of or read Virgil's The Aeneid, it traces the Roman founding story back to the sack of Troy. And so that the Roman idea of who they were were that they were these Trojan refugees from this unfair war that the Greeks waged against them. And then when they had defeated the Greeks in battle and taken over Greece and subjected it to the empire, it's really the avenge of the Trojan gods on Greece. That's the Aeneid. Uh, others' attempts, like Ovid, tried to write the Metamorphoses, which was one of our major sources of the myths of the past, along with Hesiod's Theogony. Hesiod was a Greek, Ovid was a Roman. But Ovid was criticized and actually banned from Rome and sent out to the far east of the, Red, of the Black Sea because he kind of made fun of the gods. You did not make fun of the gods. It's why under Tiberius and <clears throat> Claudius, Nero, Caligula, Christians were persecuted because they, they would not submit to and worship the gods, one of whom was the Roman emperor. So you can't disconnect the situation in Acts of the Apostles from uh, government attempts to control and mold the people in a, in a mythic story that upheld the legitimacy of the state. Um, but it was more than just a government attempt to control how people thought. Governments were always trying to control how people thought, think, and they used whatever stories necessary to do it. It's why Christianity is such a threat in the United States, China, Russia the attempt to control what people believe. So philosophers are also employed in the mythic pro uh, project in the ancient world. Mostly philosophers make fun of the myths as sources of truth, 
for how things come to be. A really good example would be the Roman philosopher Lucretius, who wrote on the nature of things that mocked religion. Um, he got away with it because he, he had support, because what he proposed was a more rational way of thinking about the world. He's one of the first people that ends up talking about atoms. But other philosophers saw in the myths great stories of wisdom. So for instance, Apollo's shrine at Delphi had two sayings next to the front door, both in Greek, which I won't try to quote for you, since none of us speak Koine Greek. But what the two sayings translate to in modern English is, know yourself, nothing in excess. Those are the two rules. Know who you are, that you are immortal. And then avoid abusing things. So the point is, even in the mythic world, there were connections that we Christians could make with Gentile believers. And as what the people believed, well, they sacrificed. Maybe they, some people just went along to get along. But others clearly believed in the power of magic, and the gods were tied up with magical thinking. But the problem of the gods always were that they would bless you and give you something, and then the bite would come. The gods were always kind of two-faced. They seemed to do things for you, and then um, they would hurt you. But that was also in the myths. So there's the myth of Aeos and Tirot, which I talked about, I think, last week in my homily. Uh, she's the goddess of the dawn. She has, just always loves mortal guys. She has a thing for mortal guys. I mean, And so she, uh, she uh, kidnaps this Roman a prince named Tiro, and because she's much more powerful than he is, they make love. Uh, Tiro wants something in return, give me immortality. So Aeos goes to Zeus to get him the gift of immortality, which Zeus grants to Tiro, the Trojan prince, but he does not grant agelessness. So although Tiro will live forever, he'll just constantly get old until, according to Ovid, he becomes a grasshopper. Um, so, I mean, wow, uh, that's uh, one view of eternal life, not the Christian view. But as you think about all of this, what I want to point out is in the story of the Acts of the Apostles, which is about Paul and Barnabas really centered on Antioch, going to a synagogue, preaching to the Jews, meeting some opposition. A week later on Sunday, they meet with the Gentiles, and they have great success, which angers the Jews, so they're forced out of Antioch and have to go on to Iconium. So there's three cities involved in this reading, and it's a fairly typical um, story about evangelization, about how Paul always goes first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, but tends to meet much more success uh, amongst the Gentiles as resistance to the gospel hardens amongst the Jewish people and really leads to the split between Christianity and Judaism that really is rooted in the first century conflict between these two communities. The best way of looking at Christianity and Judaism, in my estimation, is that they're both different forms of, of the religion of Israel that come out of the first century. Uh, the Christians come out with the temple intact, Jesus, the sacrifice intact, Jesus, the priesthood intact, Jesus, and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The Jewish people come out of the first century without sacrifice, without a temple, because the Romans destroy it. 
for the reasons I've explained. It's a rival way of organizing society, um, which is contrary to the idea that there are many gods and you get along as long as you worship the emperor. It's about government control. So think about those two forms of Judaism rooted in this story. But what about the mythic world? What role does that play in this story? Well, here's a really good example. Artemis, who is the sister of Apollo, they're the twin children of Zeus, the head god, and Leto, a goddess. And Apollo represents the sun, and Artemis represents the moon. So Artemis, and this is the, the key goddess involved here, Artemis is the, the goddess of wild things, of virginity, and of uh, childbirth, which all don't seem like the same thing, but they're all involved basically with nature. Feminine goddesses are often really deeply associated with, and male gods too, and to some extent also, with basic natural processes like fertility, and fertility is huge. So if you remember the story, in Perga, Artemis was worshipped like in Ephesus. And if you remember the story about when Paul and Barnabas preach at Ephesus, many-breasted Artemis, who is a symbol of this abundant fertility. Um, many-breasted Artemis, uh, the silversmiths, are turned against Paul and Barnabas because they make images of Artemis for the home. And Paul and Barnabas are undermining the, the uh, mythic gods by their preaching of this one god. So the Jews light up the, um, uh, the, um, uh, the enemies, I should say, of Paul and Barnabas, light up the silversmiths who kick him out of, Ar out, of, uh, out of Ephesus. Perga is also a center of Artemis worship. And so when they leave Perga, they leave a place where there is this mood goddess being worshiped. And so some Gentiles come to them, some Jews come to them, but many others reject them. And so in the story, they go to Antioch. So keep with me on this, Artemis is the moon goddess. In Antioch, the god that's worshiped is Maine. He's the moon god. So you have a moon goddess and a moon god. The god in Antioch's roots are not in Greek mythology, but in Phrygian mythology. That's this would be Phrygia would be the central part of um, of uh, Asia Minor, and in Antioch, according to the article I read, if you believed that the moon was a feminist goddess, that meant that your wife dominated you. You want to be a real man, you have to believe that the moon is actually a god. So this is the story of how of of where they walk into a a place where they have mythologies that are absolutely contrary to each other, but still have some success with the Gentiles. And that's why they're kicked out of Antioch, and they go to Iconium. In Iconium, which is, I believe, north of Antioch, it also is rooted in Eastern mythology, not so much in the Greek mythology, except that it did have this founding story, and often enough, Ateological myths, myths that explain why something is the way it is, are founding myths. So the founding story for Iconium was they were founded by Perseus after he had slayed Medusa. She's one of the three Gorgon sisters who can turn men to stone. And so 
he married another uh, goddess or a human wife and founded the city of, of Iconium. And so in the space of three different cities, you have three different dominant gods. In the space of three different cities, you're dealing with Jewish opposition uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how is it that Paul and Barnabas are successful? Because you have to accept that this is a very complicated cultural arrangement. They're successful because of who they eat with. So in Galatians, which is Gaul, Galatia is the central part of Asia Minor. It's the very area that we're talking about, of Perga, Antioch, and Iconium. Um, Paul writes in Galatians what he criticizes Peter for, but it also says what's successful, why Paul and Barnabas are successful. So here's what Galatians says in chapter 2, I think. And when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he clearly was wrong. For until some people came from Jesus, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to draw back and separated himself because he was afraid of the circumcised, that is, the Jewish people. And the rest of the Jews also acted hypocritically. I think he's talking about Jews that followed Jesus. Acted hypocritically along with him, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Barnabas is Paul's companion. But when I saw that they were not on the right road in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's St. Peter, in front of all, if you, though a Jew, are living like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? So what's the early church doing? They're living in a Gentile manner. So this is the secret. They meet the Gentiles where the Gentiles live. It angers the Jews, one of the reasons they're opposed, because Paul is not keeping kosher, though he claims to be a faithful Pharisee. Paul never thought of himself as a Catholic or probably even a, a Christian. Those things really develop uh, after his time. Um, but the second thing that Paul does, and this is in Acts of the Apostle, chapter 17, it's how he preaches in Athens at the Areopagus. The Areopagus is the place where judgment is founded. It's actually talked about in the myth of Oedipus Rex, in the last part of Oedipus Rex, uh, the kindly ones is the third, is the third part of uh, that series of three plays. And there Paul preaches, because he's being charged again uh, with preaching against the gods. But he says, I notice you have an unknown God, but I can tell you who that God is. And then he goes into preaching the gospel. So think about Paul's pattern of evangelization in these complicated worlds where there's these different myths floating around, and then the Jewish people with all their laws, and he's navigating in between. It's who he eats with, it's how he connects with both the Old Testament when talking to Jews and Greek myth when he talks to the Greeks, where he's talking about a God uh, who really is the only and one God. Everything else is some created being. But it's connecting with the places in the culture that he can talk to, either how you eat or how you think about God, to bring people to the gospel. This is why he has success. Now let's take a moment and think about that in the world that you and I live in. 
And so Paul and Barnabas, how were they successful? They ate with the sheep. How were they successful? They understood how the sheep thought. How were they successful? They were able to speak the truth to Jew and Gentile. And then the people that were made to hear would hear because faith is a gift. That's why the good shepherd says that his sheep hear his voice and he knows them and they follow him. That the work of evangelization is not just about us. It's about who God is and God's call to the human soul. So when you think about sharing your faith, say a prayer. Uh, say a prayer to St. Paul and St. Barnabas for help as you're talking to somebody. And then what happens? Conversion is never this rapid change from one way of life to another. It's a process. But it starts because you believe that your own myths are inadequate and that the story of Jesus and the people of Israel better explains what it means to be a human being and that you can follow that and try that on for size and see that it fits the human being much better than many of the myths that uh, we have in our own culture. You know, Barack Obama said, uh, if you remember famously, that uh, Christians clung to their Bible and to their guns. Um, that was a myth. Um, he was talking about people just fundamentally disagreed with him about abortion. And if you're aware of what's happening with the Supreme Court and the leak of the Supreme Court decision, it is igniting the passions in this country between now and when apparently the Supreme Court will be issuing a decision that is going to disappoint somebody in our country. Because we do have these myths that abortion makes women free. Um, well, if it means it makes them like men and they can compete on business and they can walk away from relationships and important commitments just like men have done throughout time, and if that's what freedom is for you, then I, I suppose in some weird sense that's freedom. But there's a greater freedom proposed by the gospel, and it's the freedom to be who God made you to be to be rooted in your nature as man and woman, husband and wife, a celibate priest or, or a single woman and single man living a chaste life. This is the real experience of freedom. And I've always thought that that phrase on the front of the temple of Delphi, remember I, I said that Apollo's temple had two short phrases and they were know yourself which we Christians would call humility. That goes back to Heraclitus. But know who you are. You're not a god. You're a finite human being. And the second was nothing in excess because that will destroy you. Having your desires for material acquisition will simply ultimately undermine your happiness because it's an insatiable appetite. Christians have the truth about what it means to be a human being and the truth about who God is. So we should not be uh, timid about respectfully sharing our faith with others. And then they are interested or they're not. And just remember what, what St. Paul says. Just shake the dust from your feet. Actually, Jesus said that. And this is what Paul did in the story of Acts of the Apostles. He moved from Perga to Antioch to Iconium. He just kept talking to those who were interested, and then he would move on because he would eat with them and he understood how they thought. And in that, he was like Jesus.
Because remember, when Jesus is crucified at, uh, on Calvary, uh, according to Josephus at Passover, when this happens, about 250,000 sheep are being slaughtered by Israelite men, Jewish men, and they're being bled out, these sheep, into these pails, which are held by the priests and the Levites. The blood is just thrown against the altar, and that's how the Passover sacrifice would take place. Uh, and then the sheep would be taken home, and it would be put on a spit that was cross-shaped and roasted. But what Josephus said was that, that so much blood it drained down a little channel, then out through these two holes, he called them like nostrils, through the temple wall. And they would run down into the Kidron Valley into a stream, and then the blood would be washed away that way. Because you have to think there's a lot of blood on Passover. And so when St. John said that he saw blood and water coming from the side of Jesus, he's thinking of the slaughter of the Passover lambs. So Jesus takes his place with the lambs. We're supposed to take our place with the lambs also. This is how you're an effective evangelizer. So this has been Oro Valley Catholic, something to think about in the coming week. God bless you and yours, uh, and keep up the good fight.